Welcome to the Gasps from a Dying Art Form podcast, where I talk about the history and philosophy of tap dance and things that are tap dance adjacent. If you like the show, please become a supporter on Patreon. Half of all profits go to the Mad Rhythms Tap Academy at the Harold Washington Cultural Center in the historic Bronzeville neighborhood of Chicago's South Side. Hello, and welcome to the Gasps from a Dying Art Form podcast. I am your host, Tristan Bruins, and uh, where we usually discuss matters of tap dance history and philosophy, in this episode, titled Nope, or When Tap Dancers Share Anti-Semitic Propaganda, I would like to talk about the popular anti-Semitic tropes found in anti-Semitic books and talking points. The reason I bring this up is because there is a well-known, influential tap dancer who has posted and pinned an inspirational video on their social media that contains what I believe to be anti-Semitic content, including the picture of a book that is, without a doubt in my mind, a work of anti-Semitic propaganda. I am not going to name the tap dancer because I honestly believe that they have no idea what they are sharing and that they are displaying a definite lack of critical reading and critical thinking skills. Or that the person is just lazy and doesn't put forth the effort to actually check out who is writing the book and vet the people listed as sources. Or perhaps both. This does not stop them from encouraging other people to read this book, and I think that ignorance and influence are a dangerous combination. There is not a lot about tap dance in this episode, but since it is a tap dancer sharing this stuff, I think that this gives me an in to talk about it. FYI, the video will be posted in the Gasps from a Dying Art Form Facebook page, and you can find it by looking up anti-Semitism in the search. For those of you listening in the future, you may be disappointed to learn that anti-Semitism started trending again in the year 2022. Maybe it is still trending in the time when you are hearing this. I certainly hope not. But hopefully you can say, well, in the future, where I now live, at least tap dancers know better than to fall for this stuff. That is the goal of this podcast episode. So let's put on our critical thinking caps and dive right in. The video being shared by the tap dancer in question is meant to be inspirational, and in the description above the video, they state clearly, quote, this is who I am, end quote. And the video itself contains big, bold words that pop up, words like truth and intelligence, which I take to mean that this person is communicating to their audience that they at least believe everything in this video to be true, and intelligent. There are several benign inspirational memes about believing in yourself next to pictures of cats and trees, and and some of those are all fine. 
There is even a meme quote attributed to Roman emperor and Stoic philosopher Marcus Aurelius that says, quote, Everything we hear is an opinion, not a fact. Everything we hear is perspective, not truth, end quote. Which contradicts the point of the video that this tap dancer knows the truth. Or else why flash big words like truth? Unless they mean that there is no truth and they're saying that sarcastically like truth? <laughs> Maybe. But this may be a clue as to the level of critical thinking that went into this video. There are other memes, like a supposed quote by Eleanor Roosevelt that reads, quote, no one can make you feel inferior without your consent, end quote. And others attributed to no one that say things like, quote, promote what you love instead of bashing what you hate, end quote. And, quote, a negative mind will never give you a positive life, end quote. These sound at least neutral on the surface, and I suppose they can be. But what I interpret them to mean, after arguing with other truth seekers online, is that aphorisms like these are used to justify their probably not true worldview. And then anyone who tells them, you know, a secret cabal of lizard people is probably not real. I don't, I don't think that's true. Well, that person's just being negative and close-minded because they use words like not and don't. Two negative words. Which is false, because there's no cabal of lizard people. If I tell you the moon is made of cheese and you laugh at me, I can always tell myself, no one can make you feel inferior without your consent, and convince myself that we just have differing opinions on what the moon is made of, justifying my belief in a celestial Gouda. You see how this works. They know the truth, and if you disagree, well, you're just being negative. In between the videos, run-of-the-mill and tongue-in-cheek self-help memory, there are a few images which I believe to be highly problematic. First, there is a quick flash of the book Rule by Secrecy by author Jim Mars, which contains an abundance of anti-Semitic tropes. Second, there is a quote about who rules the banking system attributed to Henry Ford, the founder of the Ford Motor Company and wealthy industrialist. Third, there is a picture of what appears to be an Israeli child and an Arab child with their arms around each other with the quote, coexist, written above using various religious symbols. Perhaps you've seen the bumper sticker. Why are these things problematic? Well, let's start with the picture of the children. Perhaps you are aware that there is an ongoing conflict between the nations of Israel and Palestine. In short, this land located on the eastern Mediterranean coast of West Asia, also called the Levant, used to be owned by the Ottoman Empire, a dynastic superpower that ruled large areas of the Middle East, Eastern Europe, and North Africa for more than 600 years, that is, until the 1920s, when World War I officially put the kibosh on them, allowing Britain to take control of the Levantine area. At the time, this area, known as the Nation of Palestine, contained an Arab majority and a Jewish minority, and the British tried to create a national home for Jewish people for many different reasons. 
Seeing as Jewish people have suffered unjust persecution for a few millennia, that doesn't sound so bad. Except that would mean taking away land from people who already claimed ownership of it. Between the 1920s and 1940s, and especially after World War II, a lot of Jewish people fled to this area because, holy shit, the Holocaust. The Holocaust saw the murder of roughly 6 million Jewish people and is considered one of the most atrocious acts in recorded human history. So who wouldn't want to get away from there? In 1947, the United Nations voted to create two states, that of Israel and that of Palestine. Jewish leaders accepted this plan. Arab leaders did not. But they went ahead with it anyways. And since neither side has ever settled on a peace agreement, there is still fighting today. We can accept a picture of a Jewish child who is wearing a yarmulke and an Arab child wearing a kefya a couple different ways. The first way, and the way that I think that the tap dancer sharing it means it, is that people should just learn to get along. Yes, I agree. War bad, killing bad. Another way that it can be interpreted is to say that you are picking a side. And that side would be Israel, because the whole point is that they want to stay there, whereas peace for Palestine would mean that Israelis uh, would be getting the heck out. On one hand, you can see the Israeli side as being more reasonable, as does politically conservative right-wing commentator Ben Shapiro, who explains it on a recent episode of the Lex Friedman podcast. The, the formula that's typically used has become a bit of a, a bumper sticker, but it happens to be factually correct. If, if the Palestinians put down their guns tomorrow, there would be a state. If the Israelis put down their guns, there would be no Israel. But you can also see things from the Palestinian point of view. Let's say that you've been living in a house that has been in your family for generations. Then another family comes in and says that they're going to live in part of the house from now on. Wouldn't you be like, hey, Get out of my house. But then it turns out that they used to live there and were wrongfully evicted. So who does the house belong to now? That's not right that these other people got evicted, but at the same time, where are you supposed to live? On top of that, there is a religious component. Besides, you know, Jewish people wanting to have their own place again, the Bible in Genesis 15 18 to 21, uh, God tells Abram, later renamed Abraham, that the sacred land in question belongs to his descendants, considered to be the Jewish people, and says that, quote, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, and said that, To your descendants I give this land. End quote. The Bible is one of the most important books ever written. But it is still a book written by humans, so if it says that the Jewish people own the land, does that make it true? A lot of people say, yes. Those people are often labeled as Zionists. A Zionist could be described as an Israeli nationalist, someone who fervently believes that Israel and Jewish people should have their own state. Where it gets confusing is when you fold in the Christian Zionists. They want Jewish people to live in Israel so that they can be around to see the return of Jesus and initiate the rapture. 
which is an uncomfortable thing to base statehood on. So when you see non-Jewish people share pro-Israel stuff, it might be related to Christian Zionism. Or they might just feel bad for Jewish people historically, which, yeah, you that's that's legitimate too. That one scares me, as I am sure I would be one of the ones who are left behind. You can see how a simple picture of a Jewish child and an Arab child can mean many different things. The conflict between Israel and Palestine is way, way more complicated than this, and you can see how there is no simple answer to this conundrum. I honestly believe that the tap dancer sharing this image is probably thinking that the picture is of two kiddos putting aside their differences and enjoying the sun sparkling off the peaks of nearby desert sand dunes. However, due to the amount of interest in this conflict, the amount of media coverage it gets, and out of all the innocent pictures of children hugging each other that exist on the internet, to pick one containing a Jewish and an Arab child is without a doubt a political statement whether the person sharing it knows that or not. Again, I do not believe that the level of critical thinking that went into this is very high. Or am I just being negative and close-minded? Who wouldn't want Israel and Palestine people to get along? Zionists or not? Well, the author of the book in the next slide in the video, which is a picture of the book Rule by Secrecy by author Jim Mars, which is unabashedly anti-Zionist and absolutely does not want to see Israeli nationalists happy. Another contradiction in this video. This brings us to anti-Semitic trope number one, the separation of Jewish people from their Jewishness. The idea is that if you are criticizing Israeli nationalists, that you're really not being anti-Semitic because well, you don't mean all Jewish people, just the Zionists. In Rule by Secrecy, Mars describes it thusly, saying that, quote, any discussion of anti-Semitism is frequently lost in a misunderstanding of the distinction between Hebrews, Jews, and Zionists, end quote. Mars defines Hebrews as a race of people descended from Abraham from the Old Testament Bible, uh, defines a Jewish person as an adherent of the Jewish religion, and defines a Zionist as a member of a political movement concerned with preserving and furthering the aims of the state of Israel. So, Hebrew is race, Jewish is religion, and Zionist is political. Got it? Okay. So, it's not Hebrews or Jewish people that the book attacks, but Zionists. So don't call it anti-Semitic, because it's not against all Jewish people, or so it claims. The problem with that is that the word Jew and Jewish come up a total of 135 times in the book and are used to describe every Zionist. And the words are often used interchangeably, making it easy to equate one with the other. The words Zion and Zionists are cumulatively used only 14 times in the book, which is odd if that is the group that you are concerned about. Nevertheless, Mars attempts to clear up the confusion, writing that, quote, it is here, 
in the realm of politics that much confusion has been sown. Supporters of Zionism for years have skillfully attacked their opponents as anti-Semites, to the extent that many Americans, Jews, and Gentiles alike, and especially the media, are loath to even question the policies of Israel, no matter how odious, end quote. This brings us to anti-Semitic trope number two, the downplaying of anti-Semitism. Quote, Furthermore, writes Mars, the broad brush of anti-Semitism frequently has been used to besmirch anyone offering a conspiratorial view of history. While it may be true that secret organizations in the past were built along both racial and religious grounds, attempting to bring race or religion into a discussion of modern secret societies and conspiracies only serves to confuse the issue and repel conscientious researchers, end quote. Mars is clear that it's not about race, i.e. Hebrew people, or religion, i.e. Jewish people. So the one that is responsible for the modern secret societies must be the Zionists. Mars then uses a Hitler analogy, rarely a good idea and often a sign of fallacious thinking, and writes that, quote, although many international financiers are of Jewish descent, it is no more fair to accuse the Hebrew race of an international conspiracy than it would be to blame all Caucasians for the acts of Hitler's Nazis, end quote. This is a ridiculously terrible comparison. Mars says that just because a group of people, Jewish financiers, are of this religion, doesn't mean that people of a certain race, the Hebrews, should be discriminated against, in the same way that a group of people of a certain race, Caucasians or white people, shouldn't be held responsible for the actions of one guy of their same race, Hitler. Huh? The first premise states that religion does not equal race, and the second premise states that the actions of one person do not represent the thinking of the whole. These are supposed to be equal comparisons, yet they are not equal in any way. And even though this is written immediately after the part detailing the difference between Zionists, Jewish people, and Hebrews, Mars uses the word Jewish to describe members of an international conspiracy. Mars uses the word Jewish to describe members of an, quote, international conspiracy, end quote, which is what was previously attributed to the Zionists. Why not just call them Zionists? I think that it's because he really means Jewish people, and all that Hebrew-Jewish-Zionist mumbo-jumbo is just smokescreen to say nasty stuff about them. This is just a taste of the slipperiness of propaganda, slipping in confusing and contradictory statements that allows the author to say one thing without taking responsibility for something else they just said. We will discuss the slipperiness in greater detail in a little bit. Next up, we have anti-Semitic trope number three, equating statistics with morality. This is the thinking that just because there are many people somewhere, that you can somehow know their moral intentions. Just because there are many Jewish financiers around the world, 
doesn't mean that they are international conspiracists. In the same way that just because there is a large number of black and Hispanic people in hip-hop does not mean that there is a conspiracy to keep down the poor, pale hip-hop artists. There are a lot of black and Hispanic people in hip-hop because those are the two groups that had the most say in the creation and development of the hip-hop genre, in the same way that Jewish people were historically not allowed to do many other jobs besides money lending. Also, that other religions prevented themselves from becoming money lenders, or put large restrictions on the business of money lending. Jewish people were at the ground floor of the major money lending institutions, and have grown these businesses into what they are now. Can rich people be terrible, irresponsible, and harmful? Of course. Are there a lot of rich Jewish people? Sure. Are there probably a lot of terrible, rich Jewish people? Probably. Are these rich people terrible because they are Jewish? Nope. Just because a group of similar people are in a room together, or work in the same industry, does not mean that they are up to something dastardly. Rich people be richin', y'all, regardless of religion. In Rule by Secrecy, Mars writes that, quote, the idea that a small, wealthy ruling elite, an oligarchy, controls America appears to be well supported by the facts, end quote, and then lists those facts as, quote, a mere 2% of U.S. families control 54% of the nation's wealth, and only 10% of the people owns 86% of the net financial assets. The majority of American families, 55%, have zero or negative net worth. That's a lot of confusing statistics. Or maybe I'm just bad at math. And Mars asks the question, who are these wealthy elites? Writing that, quote, but who exactly are they? Who are the men, few women seem to be included, that may well control the destiny of planet Earth? Why do they act in secrecy, and why are they attracted to secret organizations? What secrets do they possess that allow them to assume the role of a ruling elite? More important, what are their goals and agendas? End quote. Mars gives an immediate example of who they are. Quote, in 1909, Walter Rathenau of General Electric in Germany said, quote, 300 men, all of whom know one another, direct the economic destiny of Europe and choose their successors from among themselves, end quote. Rathenau's figure may have provided the basis for conspiracy author Dr. John Coleman's claim that a committee of 300 controls a secret upper-level parallel government that runs Britain and the U.S., end quote. Who is Walter Rathenau of Germany's General Electric? Why should I believe him? When did he say this? Is it backed up by anything? None of these questions are answered by Mars, but he does go into detail on this secret Committee of 300. And as any good critical thinker knows, we can learn a lot by viewing the source of Mars's information, the just-cited Dr. John Coleman. Anti-Semitic trope number four should be an obvious red flag, and that is the use of confirmed anti-Semitic authors as the basis for your research. Early in the book, Mars gives us a list of authors who he considers of quality, and whose books he uses as reference throughout Rule by Secrecy, often quoting the opinions of the authors themselves 
instead of the people or documents from where they got their information from. If you were to vet these authors, what do you think you will find? Anti-Semites, of course. Take, for instance, the person we were just talking about, Dr. John Coleman. Uh, I could not find what kind of doctor he is, by the way. Who, in his 1992 book, Conspirator's Hierarchy, The Story of the Committee of 300, which is the book used as a source for Mars's book, writes about the secret organization of Jewish homosexuals who are out to get him for revealing the, quote, upper-level parallel government that runs Britain and the U.S., end quote. Coleman writes about how it is, quote, according to plan, end quote, that the one-world government is responsible for what he considers the improper education of our youth with the goal to, quote, take control of education in America with the intent and purpose of utterly and completely destroying it, end quote. And voices concern how the Mossad, the Israeli secret service, has their hands in every country, since there are Jewish communities all over the world and, quote, is able to pick agents among local Jews it can have and hold over and make them work for it without pay. I had to read it that way because Coleman actually uses all caps in his own book, like a pre-internet internet troll. Coleman also laments that, quote, racial pride is now frowned upon and deemed to be an illegal act in many parts of the world. All countries having the largest concentrations of the white race, end quote. Dr. John Coleman is an avowed anti-Semite, white nationalist, and homophobe, and his book is referenced nine times regarding Jewish bankers in rule by secrecy, right? So when Mars writes about, he doesn't say that the secret organization is Jewish people in that last example I read from Mars's book, but he says that one of these groups could be the Committee of 300, and then if we look at where he gets this idea from, it blames it on Jewish people, so he means Jewish people, do you see? Oh, so slippery. Ugh. Using a source this biased is a big problem. That should be obvious to anyone that has access to an internet search engine. Another author listed in Rule by Secrecy is Eustace Mullins, who is the author of The Federal Reserve Conspiracy, first published in 1952 by the Christian Educational Association. I feel like just putting the word conspiracy in the title should count as a trope. Anyways. The front inside cover teases how Mullins is going to expose, quote, the plot behind the passage of the Federal Reserve Act of 1913, which was the abdication of Congress and the creation of the money trust, placing the nation's banking reserves in the hands of the Jewish international bankers for the purpose of carrying out their nearly fulfilled world dictatorship plan, end quote. Whew, that's a mouthful. Mullins tells the story of when six rich dudes met in secret to craft the plan what would become the Federal Reserve of the United States, the evidence for this meeting being a secret pact for Jewish world domination amounts to that uh, these men were rich, some of them were Jewish, not all, and they kept the meeting secret for almost two decades. Mullins's evidence comes from such scholarly works as ABC, 
of the Federal Reserve System and who's who in America to make his case that these people did exist, that they were rich, that some of them were Jewish, and that they were indeed in the same place at the same times. But, hey, maybe you're not convinced. Secret meetings do sound ominous, don't they? Let's make it easier then. Mullins is also the author of The Biological Jew, published by Faith and Service Books in 1968. With this book, you don't even need to open the front cover to get your Tetman sense tingling. Mullins makes the case that since there are animal parasites that feed off animal hosts, that there must be a human equivalent. And you'll never guess who the parasites turn out to be. Well, it's Jewish people. Mullins writes that, quote, Throughout nature, the parasite seeks a host. The host tries to dislodge him. If he succeeds, the parasite soon returns. The Jews have been expelled from, end quote, because I think you get the gist. I ain't reading no more of that. The comparison is really, really, really stupid, is complete pseudo-metaphysics, and is another old anti-Semitic trope. Mullins is also sourced nine times in Rule by Secrecy to talk about Jewish bankers. All of these crappy books, because of how crappy they are, are available for free via a simple search, and I only recommend that you find them if you think that I am making any of this up. I encourage you to check me if you think that this is too weird to be true. But don't go looking them to learn anything that you can't learn via unbiased sources. That these authors are so easy to vet, you can literally judge a book by its cover, is, to me, evidence of extreme laziness to anyone who claims to put stock in rule by secrecy. Just look up the titles of its sources. Do they say Jew? Or conspiracy on the cover? Or in the first three pages? If yes, then that's probably a crappy book. But what if their facts are true, but their opinions are wrong? Ask the local conspiracy theorist. Should we ignore the facts in their book just because of the bias that surrounds them? Yes, we absolutely should throw out the whole book. The point that some of the things these authors write about may be factually true does not mean that these books have any educational merit, because using real facts in a manipulative way makes those facts irrelevant. Here's another common anti-Semitic fact. How did Jewish people initially earn so much wealth? By participating in the African slave trade, of course. Is that true? Yes, absolutely. Did pretty much all white eligible groups participate and make money from the African slave trade? You bet. Not only white people, but there were black slave owners in the U.S. and Africa, too. And there were black brown slave owners in South America and the Caribbean. If everyone participated in this heinous act, what is the point of only bringing up Jewish slave owners? The answer is to disproportionately vilify them, of course. I'm even remiss to bring up the non-white slave owners because that is a cherry-picked fact that white supremacists use to downplay white people's role in slavery. So please don't confuse me for using that fact in any way than to point out that everyone was participating in the slave trade in the West majority white 
and that to single out a minority group without referencing the larger picture is duplicitous and manipulative. Anti-Semitic trope number five is a weird one, so strap yourself in, because this is where it really gets slippery. In Rule by Secrecy, Mars consistently references documents called the Protocols of the Learned Elders of Zion, a plagiarized text that purports to contain a list of procedures for world domination by a secret cabal of Jewish people and various secret societies. The Protocols first appeared in Russian books and newspapers in the first decade of the 20th century as anti-Semitic propaganda, and then spread from there. We know it is a fake because we know the source material, a book written by French political satirist Maurice Jolie, titled Dialogue in Hell Between Machiavelli and Montesquieu, a satire criticizing Napoleon III, arguably the worst Napoleon, first published in 1864. You can find that book for free online, and also copies of the protocol, which you can then compare for yourself, or visit websites that show the plagiarized passages side by side for your convenience. Here is the slipperiness. Mars admits that the protocols are of quote-unquote dubious origin, but uses the excuse that people thought that they were real as evidence of how dangerous they are. Mars writes that, quote, The protocols still chills readers with its prophetic description of the methodology for tyranny by a few. Its message fits quite well with the elitist outlooks of men like the Rothschilds, end quote. The Rothschilds are a wealthy family of bankers of Jewish origin whose involvement in finance dates to the medieval times. Mars can get inside the minds of this wealthy Jewish banking family due to one of his main sources in the section of Rule by Secrecy on the Rothschild family, and that source is Eustace Mullins, author of The Biological Jew. The trick is, okay, the protocols were not actually written by a secret Jewish cabal, but later Jewish people thought that they were, tried to emulate them, and now run a secret Jewish cabal based on them. So now it's those Jewish people that we must watch out for. That's still blaming Jewish people for trying to take over the world. Ugh, so slippery. Mars also discredits the original author, Jolie, by saying that, quote, Some claim the Frenchman Jolie simply incorporated in his book concepts he picked up as a secret society member, end quote. But, of course... Mars fails to mention who is claiming that. There are a lot of quote-unquote some people and quote-unquote there are those who say in this book and books like it. But who controls the secret societies? That's right, Jewish people. So the fake document about Jewish secret control was plagiarized from a guy who may have written it based on his time learning about Jewish secret control, which makes the document again about Jewish secret control. Like, Mars tells you how he knows that it is probably not written by evil Jewish people, but then bends over backwards to convince you that it is. Do you see the circular slipperiness of propaganda? This brings us to anti-Semitic trope number six, making infamous people into Jewish people. 
let's take the story of Hitler as presented in Rule by Secrecy. According to Mars, Hitler totally thought that the protocols of the learned elders of Zion was real, and that it was proof to him that Jewish people were out to get everyone. Thus, the Holocaust. But wait. Turns out that Hitler was secretly Jewish himself. This comes from the fact that the parentage of Hitler's father is unknown. Hitler's father was illegitimate, and we don't believe uh, ever knew his father. Hitler's paternal grandmother was known to have worked as a housemaid in the house of a wealthy Jewish businessman, had an affair with her boss, and that's how we get Jewish Hitler. <laughs> Obviously, this is a big stretch, because there is absolutely nothing to confirm any of this. If you want to make the case that Hitler, although not religiously Jewish, was biologically Jewish, then I would have to ask, so what? What if he did have Middle Eastern genetics somewhere in his ancestral past? Does having Middle Eastern, Levantine, or any genetics related to any ethnicity preclude someone towards tyranny and murder? No, it does not. And it's weird that anyone would want to make that point. So, rule by secrecy tells us that the protocols were both not and not not written by evil Jewish people. This document that wasn't, but really was, written by Jewish people inspired Hitler to kill millions of Jewish people and also Hitler was Jewish. In other words, the entirety of World War II is due to Jewish people. Do you see the slipperiness? The book takes things that even it says are not related to Jewish people and finds some way to relate them to Jewish people. The same slipperiness when it claims that it's not talking about Jewish people, but Zionists, and then calls every Zionist Jewish. This, folks, is propaganda. This is it, right here. Let's do another person that is often considered a historically bad dude. Karl Marx, father of communism and historic atheist, who turns out to be secretly Jewish the whole time, because <laughs> of course, never mind that his family converted from Judaism when he was born due to anti-Semitism, and that he was raised and baptized as a Lutheran, later renouncing all religions, and even writing an essay as a response to another essay by fellow young Hegelian Bruno Bauer called On the Jewish Question where Marx pretty much says that all religions are garbage, but Judaism is slightly less tolerable than Christianity, ending the essay by saying that, quote, the social emancipation of the Jew is the emancipation of society from Judaism, end quote. Meaning that if Jewish people want other people to stop messing with them, then they should just stop being Jewish. If you are of any religion and need a reason to hate on Marx, here you go. But Mars writes that, quote, Marx was born in 1818 in Trier, Germany, to Heinrich and Henrietta Marx, both descended from a long line of Jewish rabbis, and hence undoubtedly familiar with the mystical traditions of the Torah and the Kabbalah, end quote. Why? Why would he be, quote, hence undoubtedly familiar with the mystical traditions of the Torah and Kabbalah, end quote. There's no evidence of that at all. 
and contradicts a lot of people's reasons for why they dislike Marxist philosophy in the first place, because it is inherently atheistic, in that Marx believed that people needed to be emancipated from everything keeping them down, which included, to him, the state and religion. And also, what are the mystical traditions of the Torah and the Kabbalah? Like, do you mean... Like, secret spells? Do you mean the history? Here's some ambiguous language, the mystical traditions. What does that mean? I don't know. Neither do you. Slippery, slippery, and more slippery. No. To Mars, once you're Jewish, you're always Jewish. No matter how much time or how many ideas you put between yourself and Jewishness. Like a game of snake on an old Nokia phone, if you have the right genetics... Knowledge of Jewish mysticism comes built in. Now, I'm no brain scientist, but I don't think that that's how that works. Or else, where's my inherent knowledge of, I don't know, German and Polish mysticism? Jewish people are the only people with this superpower? That's not fair. Mars ties Hitler and Marx together through, you guessed it, the Protocols of the Learned Elders of Zion. Mars writes that, quote, it is the possibility of historical truth which has kept the protocols in circulation since its inception. Today, modern conspiracy writers see it as a real program predating Nazism or communism, end quote. Mars uses the cherry-picking method, pointing out where the tenets of communism and Nazism meet up with some of the points of the list in the protocols. Mars writes that, quote, Marx's manifesto set forth the ten immediate steps to create an ideal communist state. They bear a striking resemblance to the protocols of the learned elders of Zion, suggesting some common origin, end quote. Okay, Marx had ten things that kind of matched some of the things presented in the protocols, including acquisition of private property and free education for children, but the protocols has 24 points. So what about the other 14? Same with the Nazis. What about the rest of it? Never mind that you must twist your reasoning to make what Marx wrote conform to what's in the protocols. Why would Marx and Hitler only pick some of them and not others? Was 24 too many? Did they just have other things to do? Only 24 hours in a day. Am I right? Hey, 24 hours in a day, 24 articles in the protocol... Are Jewish people controlling time? Now there's an idea for the worst season of Doctor Who that anyone has ever thought of. This brings us to the picture quote in the Tap Dancer's video of wealthy industrialist Henry Ford, which reads, quote, it is well enough that people of the nation do not understand our banking and monetary system. For if they did, I believe there would be a revolution before tomorrow morning. End quote. Sounds benign enough, except that, as we learned, secret evil bankers are a notorious anti-Semitic trope. And as you are about to learn, if you didn't already know, Henry Ford was a notorious anti-Semite. And we know this from Mars's book. In Rule by Secrecy, Mars writes that, quote, automobile maker Henry Ford became a 
guiding light to Hitler, especially in the realm of anti-Semitism. In 1920, Ford had published an anti-Jewish book entitled The International Jew. As Hitler worked on his book Mein Kampf in 1924, he copied liberal portions of Ford's writing and even referred to Ford as, quote-unquote, one great man. Ford became an admirer of Hitler, provided funds for the Nazis, and in 1938 became the first American to receive the highest Nazi honor possible for a non-German. The Grand Cross of the Supreme... <laughs> Hold on. <coughs> okay, I can do it. <coughs> the Grand Cross of the Supreme Order of the German Eagle. <laughs> the German Eagle. Like Hitler, Ford's suspicions initially were centered on international financiers, end quote. Remember when Mars said that it was not fair to blame the Hebrew race for the international Jewish financiers? Like, like you'd think he'd at least come up with a couple synonyms for financiers uh, when writing in his voice and when writing in other people's voices, but oh well. Now, let's say for a moment that none of that stuff is true, although it very much is true. The point is that, like the people he accuses of believing the protocols, Mars believes that it is true, and wrote it in his book. Why, if this tap dancer has read Rule by Secrecy, and claims to understand it enough to say that, quote-unquote, this is me, would they include a picture and quote by Henry Ford in their inspirational video? This tap dancer believes what is written in Rule by Secrecy, and the book is telling them that Henry Ford was, quote-unquote, a guiding light to Hitler. So they then decide to put a meme about Ford a couple slides after a picture of the book. Why would they do that? I'll tell you why. Because this person didn't read the entire book. Because how do you miss Henry Ford being a guiding light to Hitler? It's the kind of thing that sticks in your brain. Since every other car on the road in the U.S. says Ford on them. This is just irresponsibly lazy to share a book that calls someone a raging anti-Semite who has it out for secret Jewish bankers and follows it with a meme of that same person raging against secret bankers. Like, come on. That's as lazy and irresponsible as it gets. And now they are recommending that you read the book. I did leave out one other detail. There was one more meme in this tap dancer's video that I find problematic. Right before the image of the book Rule by Secrecy, there is a meme showing what appears to be Jewish prisoners in a concentration camp. They are lined up, heads shaved, and wearing the now infamous striped prisoner jumpsuits and triangular patch, the classification system that the Nazis used for different types of prisoners. Walking along the line of prisoners are two men in SS uniforms and two men in fedoras and trench coats. I don't care enough to look up who these people are. Maybe it's two Americans. I don't know. None of that really matters. Words attributed to ancient Greek statesman Pericles frame the picture and read, quote, Just because you do not take an interest in politics 
doesn't mean politics won't take an interest in you, end quote. So we have a meme of Jewish people suffering in a concentration camp that appears directly before a book, which I hope I have proven to be grossly anti-Semitic, and is followed by a meme of Henry Ford, who is undoubtedly talking negatively about Jewish people. If you could somehow put aside all of that to use the suffering of Jewish prisoners during the Holocaust to further your own political and or spiritual agenda, to bolster your ranks as an internet influencer, whatever it may be is gross, disgusting, and worthy of cancellation. This is what one might call a warning to take that shit down right now. It's not so hard to come up with conspiracy theories. Here's one. Maybe there is a group of conspiratorial people whose conspiracy is that they use Jewish people as a scapegoat for their own miserable failings and write books in a slippery way to trick you into hating Jewish people, too. See? Not so hard. Here's another one. Anytime someone tells you that education, especially higher education, is a waste of time and money, that the teachers have their own agendas, that school is indoctrination, what if they just want to keep you stupid enough so that you get tricked by books like Rule by Secrecy? See? Nothing to it. Here's another one. What if the people who tell you not to trust the vast majority of people who have spent their lives studying history, science, medicine, sociology, racism, bigotry, the law, and everything responsible for pushing our society towards a more peaceful, understanding future are really just too lazy to actually study any of these things themselves and instead choose to make a buttload of money off of tricking you to buy their book about how the minorities of the world are out to get you. It's funny how some people will believe every conspiracy that you present to them, except these ones. Rule by secrecy isn't only about Jewish people. I happily report that there is very little mention of Jewish people in the section on ancient aliens, what Mars calls the secret of secrets. Yes, the aliens from the planet Nibiru, the Anunnaki, came here in a rocket ship 450,000 years ago and genetically altered some reptiles in ancient Samaria, thus perhaps inadvertently creating humanity. There's no hate in this chapter, just wide-eyed childish wonder at the thought that our shared intergalactic and reptilian heritage might be the one thing that ties together all of humanity. One lizard race, under space gods, who, according to Mars, does not disprove the Christian god at all, and makes the aliens out to be, like, Christian evolutionary middlemen. Yup, no conflict there. So, if rule by secrecy is so ridiculous, What's the problem? Well, I see two problems. The first one is that people are obviously susceptible to this kind of writing, taking it at face value and making real-world decisions based on it, like posting videos on their social media, which is frightening. I worry that even sharing an image of this book without any context whatsoever is dangerous, because what if, say... Uh, only one other person reads it, 
then gets someone else to read it, and so on and so forth, then we have a problem because we've seen what happens when propaganda is disseminated before, and we know the results. And I would rather avoid another mass genocide of Jewish people, especially because half of my family is Jewish, and I love them very much. And the thought that my nieces live in a world where people go on television and social media and repeat and share this stuff, that they may see it, that other children and adults might harass them because of it or potentially harm them, that makes me angry. That makes me really angry. Second, it will ruin the life of the person sharing it. Remember those two authors I mentioned earlier, Eustace Mullins and Dr. John Coleman? Here's what Coleman writes in the introduction to his book about the secret 300 Jewish conspirators. Quote, I pursued my investigations, pressing on in the face of severe risks, attacks on myself and my wife, financial losses, continual harassment, threats and calumny, all part of a carefully crafted and orchestrated program to discredit me, run by government agents and informers, embedded in the so-called Christian right-wing, the identity movement, and right-wing patriotic groups. These agents operated and still operate under cover of strong and fearless outspoken opposition to Judaism as their main enemy. They would have us believe, end quote. In other words, not even the politically far-right and openly anti-Semitic people want him around. Because even they're like, dude, this guy needs to tone it down a little. When the bigots think that you are too bigoty, that might be a red flag, don't you think? Coleman continues, quote, These agents and informers are led and controlled by a group of homosexuals who are well-liked and well-respected by political and religious conservatives all across the United States. Their program of calumny, lies, and hatred, disinformation about my work, even lately attributing it to other writers, continues unabated, but it has not had the desired effect. I shall carry on with my task until I have finally ripped off the mask of the entire secret upper-level parallel government that runs Britain and the U.S. This book is part of that ongoing effort, end quote. Show me these political and religious conservatives who uh, well like and well respect the, the group of secret homosexuals. I want to I meet them. In other words, he keeps going. He just said that him and his family suffer harassment, financial ruin, slander, etc. But he just keeps going. This is the fate of anti-Semites and people who propagate this information. The other author, Eustace Mullins, details in speeches how he can't even walk through an airport without them pulling him aside, searching him, and asking him a bajillion questions. Because they believe that he is a psychopath due to the psychopathic, hateful, and dangerous things he has written about other people. In Chicago, people protested one of his appearances, preventing him from speaking and fleeing for his well-being. Chicago pride, y'all. If you insist on sharing this kind of information, then this is the fate that you are heading towards. We know what happens when propaganda is allowed to disseminate without 
pushback. But we can at least try to combat this nonsense. That's the point of this podcast episode. And the immediate goal is that this tap dancer who posted these anti-Semitic things in their video hears it and comes to reason and takes that video down, never to be seen again. The video, that is. Maybe they'll actually read the book with some scrutiny and take a long, hard look at their worldview, it being, by their own admission in a private conversation with me, based largely on this book, which they said, quote-unquote, changed their life. If they do that, it is important to forgive them. Propaganda is slippery and is meant to trick you. We must not condemn some people for being tricked, but we can decide that they have no place appearing at events or teaching our children once confronted with the evidence that what they are doing is gross and egregious. Less immediately, but no less importantly, I hope that this podcast episode can be a tool that people can use to spot propaganda of all kinds. Worst case scenario, if something truly terrible happens in the future, hopefully we can say that the tap dancers were not a part of it. Best case scenario, if nothing terrible happens, hopefully we'll say that it was, in part, the tap dancers that helped to prevent it. But that's just a gasp from a dying art form. The video in question and some of my evidence will be posted in the Gasps from a Dying Art Form Facebook page, a private page that does not allow sharing and is for reference use only. I swear, if any of you share this video out of context, I will tap dance on your face. Not much about the active tap dance in this one other than that a tap dancer is involved, but hey, I think that this stuff is important and I would rather keep tap dance and anti-Semitism as far away from each other as possible. Thank you to the GASP's Patreon supporters, Liz Rancourt-Smith, Junior Lanyon, and new supporter Lori Williams. So far, we're up to approximately 230 bucks, and the plan is to raise enough to buy one of those fancy water coolers that only fill up water bottles uh, for the studio at the Mad Rhythms Tap Academy, and then have enough to purchase reusable bottles and give them away for cheap or free to students, virtually eliminating plastic bottle waste in the studio, which, no joke, can fill up entire garbage bags by itself. We're still a long way from that goal. I think those machines are like eight to 1200 bucks, but we'll get there. I know I say that only 50% goes to the Mad Rhythms Tap Academy, but I haven't taken any out yet. And if we reach enough to do all that, well, then I will spend that money first and then maybe take something out for myself after that. I mean, it's really not about the money. But then again, maybe we can do some extra good. To all the supporters of this program, thank you very much. And now it's time for the Tap Dance Podcast Roundup. Yee-hoo! Finger guns that you, you can't. I don't know why I do that every time. You can't see that. with the theme of this episode, on episode 28 of the Tap Love Tour podcast, the tap dance podfather, Travis Knights fights back against misinformation, questioning anti-Muslim sentiments, 
and the propagation of hateful rhetoric caused by the rise of Trumpism. Ah, I said his name. I was trying not to say Oh, well. Knight's interviews an imam local to the greater Toronto area, Imam Hassan, who opines the effect at the false narratives given to Islam by the media as on Muslims, and calls for peace, saying that peaceful coexistence is possible by citing the harmony between Christians, Jewish people, and Muslim people following the Muslim conquest of Spain in 711 AD, which is, well, hey, better than under the Visigoths. Am I right? Am I right? I and mean, we can all agree on that. You suck, Visigoths. You know what doesn't suck? Is the insightful conversation between Knights and Imam Hassan. So give it a listen. On episode number 68 of the Lost in the Shuffle podcast, host Hilary Marie gives us four tips for tap dancing in a mask. Recorded in September of 2020, Hilary Marie reminds us that, quote, this is our reality, you guys, end quote, and provides helpful suggestions on how to make the best of the mask situation. What kind of mask to wear? How many to bring with you? What is the most comfortable material? How to wear it? She even includes her tried-and-true favorite mask in the episode notes, available at iTap Online. So head on over there for this and more reality-based information about all things tap dance. On episode number 35 of the Have Tap Shoes Will Travel podcast, host Rick Osley takes a break from talking about tap dance to give his reactions to the demonstrations of protest in Minneapolis following the murder of George Floyd by police officer Derek Chauvin. Oslin laments the destruction of property of local businesses, but laments even more the situation that made such demonstrations necessary. A short, touching episode of the Have Tap Shoes podcast that fits right in with the theme this gasps episode that racism and prejudice are no good. Most of these podcast episodes, like this gasps episode, don't talk too much about tap dancing. But on episode number eight of the Real Talk Tap Talks podcast, presented by Shuffle Live Productions, host Nico Rubio does the opposite and produces an episode that is primarily tap dance with very little spoken word at all. Also recorded in September of 2020, Rubio is coming off of a bout with COVID and is also suffering from the loss of his father, Melo E. Rubio, who passed away on May 9, 2020, due to complications after contracting COVID. It's 40 minutes of tap dance straight from the heart and the perfect salve after talking about so much vitriol. So I think I might put it on again. And I strongly suggest that you go check it out. All right, that's the end. Good night and good luck.
Okay, I think it's just us now. Hold on. Let me look right, look left. Nope. I don't see any other listeners around. This is the bonus section. Like how we used to have it at the uh, end of cassette tapes and some CDs. Maybe they're still around. I don't know. Okay. Now that you are familiar with these tropes, would you be able to pick out this type of speech in real-world examples? Let's find out. An example of a feisty, modern anti-Semite would be avowed white supremacist and Catholic fascist Nick Fuentes. For the benefit of future listeners, Nick Fuentes is a podcaster who doesn't pull any punches in his criticisms of Jewish people, and uh, Muslim people, and gay people, straight people who like gay people, and any non-Christians, but also Christians who aren't Christian-y enough, and black people, Hispanic people, Chinese people, well, okay, most people. He doesn't like most people. In the year 2022, Fuentes made headlines by having dinner with previous president of the United States. Uh, well, you know. Why the former president would dine with an honest-to-goodness anti-Semite? I don't know. And he claimed not to have known who Fuentes was. This is absurdly unlikely. Uh, I would think that you would vet anyone who gets an audience with any former president of the U.S., of any country, really. But I have no evidence to the contrary, and we're not here to speculate. We're here to get as close to the truth. So that's all I'll say about that. Fuentes then went on to two talk shows that I know of with the musician Kanye West, who was also at the dinner with the ex-president and who made some comments about Jewish people that are considered by the majority of people that have heard them to be anti-Semitic. According to the Southern Poverty Law Center website, on a February 2022 episode of his podcast, Fuentes had this to say, Warning, I'm about to read some heinous stuff that absolutely should offend you, and I read it to demonstrate how much of a turd this guy is, and I want to assure you that these are the opinions of Fuentes and not of myself or any supporters of the Gasps podcast. I just want to make that crystal clear. 100% Fuentes. 0% me. 0% the Gasps supporters. Fuentes says, quote, let's see, can I do a Fuentes impersonation? Let's see. Fuentes says, quote, America, for what it's worth, was founded by white Christians. It was founded by, it was not founded by Jewish people. It was not founded by Judeo-Christians. It was founded by white Christians. And white Christians are in the majority. Christianity is the religion of this nation. Not Judaism, not the Talmud, not that stuff. Let's just, it's just what it is. It's just a fact. And you know what? If we're going to make America great again, we've got to talk about this anti-white thing that's going on. End quote. Sorry, I had to spit it out of my mouth. It was bad taste. Fuentes rails against the Zionists, saying, quote, They like the idea of Christianity, where we're all Zionists, and we're all giving money to Israel, and this and that, but they're not really thrilled with just Christianity. They want it to be Judeo-Christianity. They want there to be this acknowledgement, and if we want America to be put first, and if we want to do the right thing by God... I don't know that there can be a lot of compromise there. End quote. I read this passage because it has the perfect mirepoix of prejudice 
nationalism, and zealotry, which is my personal definition of fascism. You find a place you like and want to keep it for yourself, so you kick out the other people living next to you, and what gives you the right to do that is the authority by a higher power. Nationalism, prejudice, zealotry. Fascism in a rotten nutshell. I couldn't find that clip because, believe me, I would have just played that instead of saying all that. Well, I, it's hard to find because the self-described most canceled man in America doesn't just come up on the first page of a Google search, you know? He comes up on page three. If most canceled means showing up on the second O on the search engine, then that doesn't sound too bad. The style of propaganda spouted by Fuentes matches up with the tactics found in Rule by Secrecy and other books like it. Another warning, if you thought me reading his words was upsetting, just wait until you hear him say them. Or, if it's too much, just skip ahead and just imagine the worst things that you've ever heard. That'll do it too. Here is an example of Fuentes turning historic people that he doesn't like into Jewish people. And it's true. We can talk about cancel culture, and we can talk about political correctness, and we could talk about cultural Marxism and critical race theory. But so much of it goes all the way back down to this. You want to talk about communism? Who invented communism? Lev Bronstein, Karl Marx, Vladimir Ulyanov, all Jews. You want to talk about uh, neo-Marxism and, and critical theory and the Frankfurt School? Again, who are they? They came from Frankfurt. Why did they ever leave? They got kicked out. By who? Hitler. Why? Because they were Jewish. You want to talk about you know, all these different kind of things? Take, take a look at where it goes back to. It's not about capitalism and socialism. It's not about conservatism and liberalism. It's about Catholicism, and it's about Satanism. That's a real divide. Because you cannot be a good Christian. You cannot be a true Christ believer and support the infiltration of this country by all of these revolutionary antichrist ideas. You can't do it. It's that simple. So, he ties communism and its foundation to Jewish people. It makes it, it, makes it sound like, you know, all communists are Jewish mentioning three of them, but neglects to mention that Marx was not raised Jewish and didn't much care for Judaism, as we just talked about, and also neglects to mention that there were plenty of non-Jewish communists. Like, for example, Marx's co-author of the Communist Manifesto, Friedrich Engels, whose family was Protestant and not Jewish. Seems like a pretty big one to miss, and is another example not of just putting Jewishness on people who weren't Jewish, but also cherry-picking facts to make it seem like, you know, there's a disproportionate uh, amount of villainy on one group. Yes, all the big brains of the Frankfurt School were Jewish, uh, not an actual school, FYI. But that doesn't prove anything, and the members of this intellectual cooperative wrote about a lot of different things, and did not all write like a hive mind and was more concerned with the rise of mass culture. Its members, like Theodore Adorno in his book The Meaning of Working Through the Past, wrote that fascism and communism are the same because they are two forms of 
totalitarianism, and also wrote in a letter to his pal and fellow Frankfurt Schoolian, Max Horkheimer, that, quote, our philosophy as a dialectical critique of the overall social tendency of the age stands in the sharpest opposition to the politics and doctrine that emanates from the Soviet Union. We are unable to see anything in the practice of the military dictatorships disguised as people's democracies other than a new form of repression, end quote. Again, you see how Fuentes cherry-picks some facts and presents them minus other conflicting facts to unjustly vilify one group against others. He then pulls a no-true Scotsman by implying that there are true and not-true Christians. Why does he get to dictate what a true Christian is or not? What are his qualifications? He's just a guy. In this next clip, Fuentes separates Jewish people into different groups. Then he puts them back together again and forces some people to be Jewish, whether they want to or not. But you know what it isn't? You cannot support Jewish domination of America, Zionist domination of America, and support Christ in America. Can't do it. Incompatible. Sorry, it's incompatible. And I also, even with Jason Whitlock, there's a little bit of equivocating here. He says non-religious. What do you mean non-religious? You think religious Jews? There's nothing going on with religious Jews? I love hearing from conservatives. It's those, it's those secular Jews. Ben Shapiro's a religious Jew. So you're telling me that Ben Shapiro's perfectly with us? You're telling me there's nothing going on with Ben Shapiro? That's what they always say. If To the extent that people talk about Jewish influence, they'll say it's these secular, non-religious Jews who aren't really Jewish at all. They're not even really Jewish because they're secular. Well, hang on a second. Even religious Jews know that's not true. Even religious Jews know that if you're secular, you're still a Jew. They know that. Religious Jews will say that. Maybe they won't tell it to you because they lie. But religious Jews know perfectly well that even if you don't keep the commandments, even if you don't keep the law, you're still a Jew. Because Judaism is a tribe. It's passed down matrilineally, passed down through the mother. So if you're Jewish, you're Jewish. It doesn't matter if you practice it or don't practice it. And secular Jews see themselves as Jews. Religious Jews see themselves as Jews. And they both see each other as Jews. So it's not just the secular ones. Fuentes, like Mars, separates Jewish people into categories and then blurs those categories together. Here's another one in the same vein, separating Jewish people into types, except that he doesn't. How can America be put first when you've got liberal internationalists and Zionists running the country? The secular Jews are liberal internationalists and the conservative religious Jews are Zionists. How can you have America first? How can America be made great and put first if the people running the country either don't believe in countries, they're liberal internationalists, they believe in open borders, open markets, global government, or they're Zionists. And their mission is to just divert resources to their real country, which is Israel. It can't be done. So if you don't care about Israel and are Jewish, you're bad. If you do care about Israel and are Jewish, then you're also bad. I'm not sure how anybody who at least knows the basics about Israel and Palestine could not have an opinion on it whatsoever. So he puts Jewish people between a rock and an even rockier place. 
Here's a short one that is actually kind of funny uh, because of how stupid it is. Watch how Fuentes downplays his anti-Semitism. But people say, why are you more canceled even than Alex Jones? Why are you more canceled than other people that are canceled? Because I talk about this issue that they don't talk about. And it's like I said last week, why am I at the, at the deepest level of censorship? It's because I'm the most over the target. I'm getting the most flack. I'm getting the most censored because I'm the most over the target. Yeah, you get canceled for saying anti-gay stuff because there's a pink or a purple mafia. Yeah, you get canceled for saying anti-Muslim stuff. You get canceled for saying racist stuff, anti-black stuff or anti-this or that. But you get most canceled if you say so-called anti-Semitic stuff. That's because that's the most over. Again, if most canceled means taking an extra five minutes to find online, appearing on talk shows with millions of viewers, getting national press, we're listening to clips of him on this show, so how canceled is most canceled, really? Notice how he downplays his racism by comparing it to other forms of prejudice, claiming that anti-Semitism is the gold ring at the oppression Olympics. No, they are all terrible. You will get canceled for any of those things. Unless you are very rich. Or popular. But even then. This next clip is a tough one. Because it's just lying. And Fuentes not only asserts that what he is saying is real. Which, you know, people who say real things don't have to do. They just say the things. And provides a laundry list of examples backed up by absolutely nothing but his guarantee that they are true. 9-11, the JFK assassination, the RFK assassination. Look into the details of both the RFK and the JFK assassinations. Their fingerprints are all over the place. You're just not allowed to talk about it because it's the most real thing going on. And if that weren't the case, then you'd be able to talk about it. If Jews were really such victims and didn't control everything and they were everywhere on the cusp of just being attacked because of hatred then they wouldn't have this level of influence, obviously. If they were so weak, then how are they able to cancel the biggest celebrities and the biggest politicians and able to exert influence everywhere? This is fallacious thinking. Fuentes concludes that because it's considered wrong to say nasty things about them, that Jewish people must be in control of everything. Except he also said that there are other people that you can't slander, so... Are there also secret cabals for them, too? He did mention the pink and or purple gay mafia before, so apparently in his view, yes, each minority group has their own organized syndicate oppressing the poor white Catholics, which explains why the Catholic Church and white people are so weak and get away with nothing. I'm being sarcastic, of course. Here is an example of Fuentes using the slippery, circular logic found in propaganda. See if you can spot the four-point circle of hate. I don't hate anybody, but I oppose the works of the devil, obviously, and I hate evil. And there's nothing more evil than uh, what the Talmud says about Jesus, straight-up blasphemy. And there's no salvation for people that blaspheme the Holy Spirit. He starts by saying that he loves everybody then says he hates the concept of evil, and that evil is found in a particular text, and that people who read that text are unsalvageable. Well, that's still passing a negative judgment on Jewish people based on, well, nothing. Isn't that slippery? I love all people, but hate certain ideas, which certain people have, which makes these people evil, 
Well, if you hate evil, and you think these people are evil, then you hate them too. A is to B, as B is to C, therefore A is to C. Okay, that's enough prejudice practice for one episode. More anti-Semitic tropes for you to look out for. There is the 13th tribe trope, which essentially tries to prove that the Ashkenazic Jewish people, those hailing from Central Europe, and who currently make up the majority of Jewish identifying people in the world, are not actually Jewish people. Remember trope number one, the removal of Jewish people from their Jewishness. In Rule by Secrecy, it was done by differentiating politics from religion and race. This one deals exclusively in race, pseudo-history, and biology. It goes like this. There was a very large conglomerate of people living in Western Asia and Eastern Europe called the Khazars in the land of Khazaria, and around 700 AD, the majority of them converted to Judaism because they were stuck between the Christians in Europe and the Muslims in Asia. The Christians didn't like the Muslims, but tolerated the Jewish. And the Muslims didn't like the Christians, but also tolerated the Jewish. So the prevailing theory is that the Khazars converted to Judaism in order to exist unmolested between these two other larger groups. The conspiracy theory is that the Khazars converted to Judaism and then bum-rushed Europe, killing the real Jewish people along the way, and, over a relatively short period of time, replacing Central European Jewish people with a faux-Jewish people. The claim is that modern-day, light-skinned Jewish people are not technically Jewish because they are biologically related to the Khazars and not to any of the people that lived in ancient Iran, Iraq, Syria, or anywhere in that Levantine and Middle Eastern region. To say that the Khazars, a mostly Slavic people, make up all or most of the genetics of the Ashkenazic people is false. We know this through several ways. First, we know how the Ashkenazic people came to Central Europe. And it was not by going far north and west, like through the Slavic lands, like through Turkey and then up through there, uh, but by going primarily south and west, or straight west, either by ship through the Mediterranean or by traveling along the banks of northern Africa and southern Europe, ultimately landing in Italy. There was a decent population of Jewish people living in and around Rome for approximately 800 years, procreating with Italian people. And then they traveled north to Central Europe and started intermingling with the people up there. Dr. Henry Abramson, dean of Turo University in the Bronx, literally has hundreds of videos on Jewish history and several books on the subject, and I find them to be a good resource for Jewish history uh, when you're on a time budget. And where I got this information from, right? Second, we have examples of the Khazar language, a Slavic language on which there is some, but not a whole lot, in modern Yiddish, which is a German-based language. And that there are a few Ashkenazic names related to Slavic ones, as explained in an article by Alexander Bader, an author of reference books in the field of Jewish onomastics, or the study of the history and origin of proper names, and the linguistic history of Yiddish. Third, and most convincingly, studies like a super-famous one published in the American Journal of Human Genetics on June 11, 2010, have run genetic tests on Jewish people from all over the world. And it turns out that pretty much all Jewish people, 
from Germany to Poland to New York City to South America to Africa to you name it by studying the Y chromosome in men and mitochondria <laughs> mitochondrial genetic markers in women have a considerable amount of genetic material from the Middle East, thus irrefutably debunking the myth that all light-skinned Ashkenazic Jewish people have no genetic relationship to the original Jewish people of the Levant and the Middle East. There is Slavic DNA in bits of language present among the modern-day Ashkenazic people, but not a large amount, and it seems to be the result of Slavic Jewish people just moving into Europe over a long period of time. But, again, there is zero evidence that all light-skinned Jewish people have no relation to the original Jewish people from the Middle East, and a lot of evidence to suggest that they do. So trust the science. Interesting theory, though, right? What's the harm in speculating? Well, this theory is used to justify the bad treatment of Ashkenazic Jewish people by making the claim that if they are not biologically related to the original Jewish people, then that means that they are not really Jewish. And therefore, you cannot technically be anti-Semitic when you say terrible things about them or do terrible things to them for no good reason. You might still be being a bastard, but you're not technically anti-Semitic, you savvy. Although this theory has been around since the 19th century, the most recent and most convincing example is a book from 1976 by author Arthur Kessler titled The Thirteenth Tribe, which, again, on page three of the copy I found, says, quote, Should this turn out to be the case, then the term anti-Semitism would become void of meaning based on a misapprehension shared by both the killers and their victims. The story of the Khazar Empire, as it slowly emerges from the past, begins to look like the most cruel hoax which history has ever perpetrated. End quote. Well, it doesn't turn out to be the case, as demonstrated above. But that doesn't stop modern-day anti-Semites from using... Did I say above? Like, you can't read this. As demonstrated by the genetics, the language, and... You know, the, the, just the, the written documents that we found. Not above. Above for me in this script. Hold on, start over. Right? That's all bullshit. And I told you why it's bullshit. But that doesn't stop modern day anti-Semites from using this theory to justify hate speech and unjust criticism of Ashkenazic Jewish people today. Oh, it's cool. They're not really Jewish. So how can it be anti-Semitism? is the idiotic reasoning being used by Kanye West, the artist now known under a different name, which is that guy who threw away his entire career due to anti-Semitism. When he says that he can't be anti-Semitic because the Jewish people he is railing against are not real Jewish people, well, that's a load of BS chorus times a thousand percent. Even if the Ashkenazic Jewish people didn't, have any biological relation to the Jewish people from the Middle East and Levantine region from 5,000 years ago, which we can prove that they do, so what? Like, so what? They've identified as Jewish for over a 1,000 years. Anti-Semites still call them Jewish. So nuts to this, I'm not anti-Semitic on a technicality nonsense. If you have hate for any Jewish people, 
be they religious, secular, or anywhere in between, for no reason other than they are Jewish, you are being anti-Semitic and a jerk. And I have to say, the history of the Jewish people around the world is incredibly interesting. While the Ashkenazic people were forcibly moved by the Roman Empire from the Levant uh, into Italy and eventually into Germany, another group of Jewish people were forcibly moved into Spain, called the Sephardic Jewish people. The Sephardic Jewish people uh, lived in Spain and were relatively fine for a while until those dastardly Visigoths moved in. Ooh, sucks to you, the Visigoths! The Visigoths treated the Jewish population terribly. So when the Moors from northern Africa were like, yo, we're thinking of making some moves into Spain and, I don't know, taking the place over. What do you think? The Jewish people were like, oh, hell yeah, that sounds a-okay with us. And they helped the relatively small Muslim invasion force succeed by acting as garrisons on conquered strongholds. Think about it. You're invading a land to conquer, so you conquer towns and villages as you go. But how do you keep them conquered? If you leave a portion of your soldiers at every outpost, well, you'll soon run out of soldiers. The Jewish people in Spain acted as guards in the conquered areas so that the Moors could keep moving along. Life was better for Jewish people, just like Imam Hassan said, and they only had to pay a tax for being Jewish which was better than the, you know, being murdered for being Jewish that they experienced under the Visigoths. So a big improvement. That is, until the 1492 expulsion of Jewish people from Spain by the then-Catholic monarchy, which led to a large portion of Sephardic Jewish people moving to South America and Mexico. And it's not uncommon to find many people in those regions with some Middle Eastern and Levantine DNA. Modern genetic testing allows us, in many ways, to uncover the past in a way that we never dreamed possible. I could keep going, because there is a lot to talk about. Uh, what about the Jewish people who moved into Africa, places like Ethiopia, South Africa, and Nigeria, which are harder to study due to, you guessed it, racism, and those people often being denied Jewish ancestry. Except, now we have the genetic testing to prove it. So suck on that, racists. There is also evidence that African Jewish people were enslaved and brought to the U.S., but had their names changed to that of their usually Anglo slave owners. So black people living in the U.S. may have a decent amount of Levantine and Middle Eastern genetics, too, that they're not even aware of. Also, even pale Jewish people in Central Europe can have a small amount of African DNA due to the expansive history of Jewish migrations. We're only now doing the legwork on these tests because, again, racism and bigotry poison everything. I mean, I could go on, go on. I mean, I didn't even have time to study the, the Mizrahi Jewish people. And that's my next stop. Uh, but I think this is a good primer on spotting anti-Jewish propaganda with a healthy dose of Jewish history to boot. So, tap dancers everywhere. Let us be a force for good and not fall for this nonsense. Last but not least, I'll end you with someone else's words, right? Here's the former host of uh, the television show, The Daily Show, giving a nuanced perspective on the uh, struggle between Israel and Palestine. And it's not so much who deserves to win 
or who deserves to lose, well, I'll let him explain it, right? And we'll end there, give you something to think about. All right, I'll see you later. Tapman, out! And you know what makes it even harder? Is the fact that who's right and who's wrong always seems to change depending on when you start measuring time. This week was the perfect, perfect example of it. If you start from Israel fired rockets into Gaza, well, then Israel is the bad guy because they're bombing Gaza. But then you take a step back in time, you go, well, Hamas fired rockets at Israel. Well, then Hamas is the bad guy. But then you take a step back and you go, but the Israeli police, they went in and started beating people up in a mosque during Ramadan, the most holy time in the Muslim calendar. Well, then Israel is the bad guy. But then you go, well, the Palestinians, they were throwing rocks. Well, the Israelis, they were kicking people out of their homes. Well, the Intifada, well, Israel keeps taking more and more land. Well, the Arab invasion and back and back and back and who knows how far. Like you probably find the first cavemen who hit each other with clubs were probably Israeli and Palestinian. I don't know. And look, I don't wanna have that argument. I wanna have that argument and the noise that goes back and forth in this thing because honestly, I don't think that any TV show in 10 minutes is gonna come close to solving Israel-Palestine. And 10 minutes isn't even enough time to explain the mortal combat conflict. So I'm not even trying to come in and do that, right? I'm not trying to do that. The part where we say who's good and who's bad and who started, let's, let's step away from that and instead ask a different question. Instead, let's look at who's dead and who's alive this week. In Gaza, Israeli airstrikes have reportedly killed 28 people, including 10 children. Over 150 people have been wounded. In Israel, Hamas rockets have killed two people. And this exchange of fire comes after the Israeli assault in and around the Al-Aqsa Mosque that left more than 600 Palestinian protesters, worshippers, and civilians wounded. And a few dozen Israeli police. Now, personally, I'm not saying for you, just personally, I cannot watch that footage and hear those numbers and see a fair fight. Like, set aside motives and intentions and just look at technology, technology alone. Israel has one of the most powerful militaries in the world. They can crush Gaza like that. Not to mention one of the most advanced defense systems in the world. You shoot a rocket at them, it's probably not going to do anything to them because of their defense system, right? They've got a giant Mutombo in the sky just knocking them down. And I know, I know that this is contentious. And I know that people are gonna hate me for this. But I just wanna ask an honest question here. If you are in a fight where the other person cannot beat you, how hard should you retaliate when they try to hurt you?